episode 34, Patrick and Cyprian speak with Dr. Praneha Naran, Assistant Professor of Computational Material Science at Harvard University. Among other topics, the team discuss fundamental science, material science, repeater applications, and scalable quantum networks. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hello, Cyprian. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing today? Very well. Looking forward for another great episode of Entangled Things. I don't think we're going to be disappointed today. So we're talking to Dr. Narang. Dr. Can, um, can you tell us about yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here. And thanks to everyone who is joining us. My name is Praneha Narang. I've been on the faculty here at Harvard for nearly five years. Prior to that, I was briefly at MIT, and I got my master's and my PhD at Caltech in areas of, of applied physics, and I have uh, been in the area of quantum technology now for nearly a decade. Wow. Wow. So you're exactly who we wanted to talk to, and, and you're local to us. I, I'm up in New Hampshire. You're in, in Boston at Harvard, uh, and you're running a lab at Harvard. So what what are your goals with that? Is that... Are you on a specific mission assigned to you, or do you just get to roam the universe and discover things like Star Trek? (laughs) It's a little bit of both. We are certainly very focused on fundamental science, asking very fundamental theoretical and computational questions. So we think about how we can actually predict quantum matter, how we can predict different types of interactions in quantum matter. And I want to emphasize this because these types of fundamental predictions, the the calculations we do, actually directly impact technologies that are just now making their way into the market in the form of various types of quantum computers and soon quantum networks and quantum sensors. Excellent. So, so you're looking at things like, I, uh, I mean, maybe not this specifically, but Microsoft, for example, has been trying to use fermions as the basis of their quantum computer. Uh, if they can do that, they believe that there will be much less risk of errors and they can scale it much faster. Is that, is that the kind of things you guys are looking at? Exactly. So it's a little more fundamental than that. Of course, we're not, and we're not funded with a budget nearly as impressive as that of Microsoft. But we're thinking about how we can actually predict various types of topological materials. They could have an impact in and the, the technologies that Microsoft is pursuing. We're also thinking about how, you know, defects in some of these materials can themselves be used for quantum repeater applications. And that's just one, um, you know, example that I want to talk a little bit about here today. Well, well, let's start with that. Uh, Cyprian, are you okay with we quantum repeater is is almost a, a paradox based on, you know, what it, I know about it. Absolutely. Yes. So, You know, in quantum mechanics, we have this no cloning theorem, and that would lead you to believe that there is no way for me to regain quantum information or information that is quantumly encoded uh, over large distances, especially if I'm transmitting it over fiber and there's some loss. Having said that, there are these small devices. They actually are essentially um, tiny quantum computers, and and they have some key differences, but let's just... uh, take that heuristically. And you can actually perform operations on these that allow you to essentially be an entanglement swap, have the opportunity 
to to communicate quantum information over large distances. And this is exactly what people who are working on scalable quantum networks are doing. So, so the uh, so, so, sorry, no, no, you, you mentioned a very interesting concept, and I just wanted to make sure that we're going to come back to it. You mentioned entanglement swap. So please go ahead with your idea, but then I would really, really uh, like you to uh, get into a little bit of details for our, for our listeners, because I'm sure they will love it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So our interest in these, you know, repeater type devices, they're small quantum devices, it really comes from this uh, desire to to have a scalable quantum network. And today, quantum networks are in, you know, depending on who you ask, the 80s or the 70s of what classical networks were. And some of the work we're doing is to enable the very first equivalents of ARPANET, uh, equivalents of the very first networks that are entirely using entanglement as uh, the, the backbone instead of using, say, a key distribution or using classical uh, information as uh, the, the paradigm. So this is an area where I think it's a nice blend of very applied work, right? This is where we're talking about something that is scalable, but also an opportunity for the kind of fundamental work that my group does in actually predicting new materials, ones that could allow you to make repeaters that have a chance of operating closer to uh, what I lovingly call quantum room temperature. So this is actually exiting the dilution refrigerator, you know, those giant metal, and I know I'm using my hands and, and no our problem. listeners are not going to be able to see my hands, but imagine something that, you know, if you're, if you were uh, trying to, to hug someone and, and uh, had your, your arms apart, uh, some, something that, that's uh, really, the really large footprint. Uh, and that only begins to describe the smallest Dell fridges, uh, dilution refrigerators that uh, we have today. And they're essential for various quantum technologies to bring the uh, temperature down in these devices. Most of them are not robust at even a temperature of, say, 5 Kelvin. Right. So our goal, in some way, is to introduce new materials, new device concepts that actually allow you have these technologies operate closer to quantum room temperature to exit the Delfridge, you'd still need some way of cooling them, but you don't necessarily need to be at millikelvin temperatures. And that's one of the um, ways that you can get to a, a scalable network. All, all, there's a lot of frontiers that we can do improvements on. So this is a fascinating topic. And, and, and Cyprian brought up the, the idea of the swap. Can, can you dive into that a little bit? Sure. You know, so so the idea is that, of course, I can't actually, um, I, I can't clone a quantum state, right? The, right. the no cloning theorem prevents me from either uh, directly copying it or, or doing something with it that involves uh, looking at it, right? And that's uh, essentially what also gives these quantum devices the ability to um, be, be so secure. But I can perform a swap operation. So, for example, I can have many copies of something that are, and, and I use the word copies, and, and this gets very uh, a little bit confusing because people say, well, it's not technically a copy. Sure. But I, can, I, I don't have to look at my state initially. I can just essentially have uh, a set of these that are generated. And what's happening is that I am taking, but without actually destroying my quantum state, performing a swap operation 
at this, this repeater for my quantum state. And I want to do this before I lose um, my information, right? So think of it this way. I have nice fiber. It's amazing. Uh, I can maybe transport uh, information over, you know, um, 40 to 50 kilometers before I hit something uh, that, that runs into loss. And this is the best fiber you could buy anywhere today. Yep. But if I, before getting to the, the point where I'm about to lose my state, before I'm getting to a point where I start to hit what is uh, called the repeater less bound, if I perform a swap operation at one of these devices, using the fact that I have many, many states that essentially are, are encoding uh, this, this information, I can then actually be able to transmit it further on. So in classical technologies, we do this all the time. We can take a signal, we can amplify it. We can quite literally copy it before it's lost. In, in terms of uh, quantum technology, particularly where you're using uh, entanglement as uh, the key component of a network, you, ca you can't directly um, do that. So this is a way around that, but still actually uh, getting to, to larger distances. So we've touched on this topic a few times over the, the last year. We, we, we just hit our anniversary recently. Um, so... The way I'm thinking about it may be completely flawed, but I'd love to run it by you real quick. It, it feels like there's a there's a trick here because of the no copy theorem. Yep. And and the, the way the trick seems to be working, at least the way I envision it, is um, you're going to ask all the qubits in the room to sort themselves and you're going to trust them. The ones that are closer to one will go to this side of the room and the one that's closer to zero will go to that side of the room. And you're just going to take the ones out of that side of the room. And be, is there something along that where you're inferring the value as opposed to reading the value? Right. Um, yeah. And actually, there's a concept that we perhaps won't be getting into here today, but of a, a projective measurement as well that uh, becomes important here. And an idea of uh, a scary word here, teleportation, that is uh, essential in uh, making such a quantum networks go. I know whenever I use those two uh, phrases, people uh, start to, to Star Trek. Google and look at all of this new agey <laughs> stuff. So I try and avoid it. But uh, in this context, I guess it is a little bit unavoidable. Yeah, it, it's it, it's definitely trippy th stuff when you get into it. So this is a game changer. If you can do the repeaters, we, we talked to someone from British Telecom uh, who talked about hollow core. Um, you know, there's lots of innovations coming with fiber that are making it better. Um, and they're mm -hmm. trying to improve the process, but, but eventually you're going to have loss, but if you right. can have a good repeater, that's, that's cost effective and, it, and at quantum room temperature, then the sky's the limit. We can run it under the ocean. We can run it around the world. That's right. And, um, having a quantum repeater that is, uh, able to actually support these swap operations at a reasonable rate, right? So we want to actually have these operate at, uh, when people talk about Classical uh, networks, we're of course talking about very, very, very fast internet speeds. And I say that maybe something will happen to my internet here. Um, but when we are talking about quantum networks, the speeds are still in, you know, tens or hundreds or maybe uh, a few thousand ebits per second. And that is substantially slower than anything that would uh, be needed for these networks to actually support some, some uh, practical uh, applications. So a repeater that operates with, uh, with of course, uh, favorable temperatures and is able to actually support uh, fast rates is uh, going to be important. 
And regardless of how good your fiber gets, you still run into the repeater less bound. And uh, that's uh, almost uh, uh, fundamental to some of these networks. So, so we absolutely need these repeaters. So uh, well, I think one of the only things that would be more important, actually probably not even more important than a repeater, would be, or close to it, would be the ability to read data. And that's something that Cyprian has brought up quite a bit. Cyprian, do you want to expound on your your AI frustrations that you can't read a terabyte of data into a quantum computer? Oh well, my gosh. <laughs> uh, obviously, right, that's that's one of the, the, the big confusions that, that we see out there, especially when talking to people. Like people are imagining that uh, like in no time quantum computers will run quantum databases and everything will be quantum, right? That's, that's, that's quite uh, uh, different from what is actually probably going to, to happen. But uh, mentioning the, 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 the transmission, one of the things that seems to me is kind of an Achilles heel uh, right now is how do you make the transition from the computing device, which should be or right. would be a quantum computer, right? right. To the uh, transmission kind of channel, which would be, let's say, a quantum transmission channel. Can you elaborate a little bit on what are the challenges for our audience oh. in terms of, of this kind of divide between the two? Because this is no by no means an easy task to solve, right? Right. Oh, gosh. So so you have uh, hit the, the nail on the head here. Right. So most quantum computers, right, are what I would put in the, the category of matter-based qubits. And of course, being able to transmit these requires us to be in the photonic domain. Uh, that's essential to being able to transmit them over fiber. Photons are the fastest thing we have uh, in order to actually transmit information. And those are flying qubits. So what you need, and this is uh, very broadly uh, referred to as a transduction step, where you are essentially translating that information from one qubit modality to another qubit modality ideally without losing any of it. And you, and still, have this, the, you still have the no cloning to, to work that's right. That's right. So, so there's now a, a, a double, uh, I guess, uh, problem here, right? So you don't, you're, you're already dealing with a very fragile state that you've uh, uh, worked with, worked very hard to uh, create and manipulate on your quantum computer. And you want to translate it into a flying qubit so you can transmit it to your, your best friend who may be in the other room using a different type of quantum computer or maybe very uh, maybe on the other side of the, the city. And this transduction step can be done a few different ways. And we've actually written a few papers on the various ways you could do a transduction um, very efficiently. You also need such a transduction step if you're thinking of uh, what are now very popularly called uh, QRAMs. And it's very similar to a RAM that you would have in a classical computer, but a quantum version of it. And uh, the idea is, okay, maybe I'm using a superconducting uh, quantum computer. This could be you know, one of the very nice commercially available platforms. Now I perform some transduction step, either using a photon or using a phononic, which is uh, phonons are the quantized equivalent of... Uh, of uh, vibrations in solids. This is essentially if you took heat, you took a single quanta of heat, it's called a phonon, and you can use photons and phonons um, both in these types of, of architectures, not simultaneously, mm. but ideally uh, separately. Now you could use such a phononic transduction to go either 
to um, say say a, a trapped iron uh, type uh, quantum memory, or you could use it to go to a defect uh, solid state based uh, quantum memory. And these are um, ideas that have conceptually been around for a little while. Theorists have been writing about what a quantum memory could do, what types of uh, uh, protocols it would enable, but you know, we're only now getting to a point where you are meaningfully talking about connecting various qubit modalities with each other. You're actually talking about how to, to make this go with reasonable fidelities. And our, our friends in engineering, our friends in uh, system level engineering are, are actually now really uh, you know, able to realize such uh, architectures. So um I was going somewhere with this. Maybe I lost my thread. So it's help really, me out this here. is really, I mean, this is really fascinating. Uh, this this topic, but uh, uh, the fact that there is, let's say, already uh, work that that seems to be super promising. I think that's that's very very encouraging from my point of view. Yeah, um, and you know, it's interdisciplinary. So there are people entering this field who have um, training in quantum information or in quantum devices. There are a lot of people who are coming from classical computer science, classical uh, electrical and uh, mechanical engineering. I mentioned these phononic concepts. People are talking about these using various uh, uh, things that have been around in nanomechanical systems, actually. Material scientists, physicists, I mean, the field is really, really growing. So mm. well, lots me- to look forward to. <clears throat> so Cyprian's background is he's a data a data guy uh, and an AI guy, and I'm a cybersecurity. And so we both come to it with a passion, but neither one of us are doing it for our day job. Uh, but we're just fascinated by every aspect of it. And um, it sounds like you're very much, your lab is very much on the cutting edge of things. And, uh, and, and that's very exciting. Is, is there anything else that you're, that you would like to, you know, Make sure we talk about because we 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 we, we could uh, certainly dive into this I, the entire yeah. Show. But I'm I'm sorry, Patrick. I have one question. Oh, no I, I was like no like dying to ask right from the beginning. Um, so uh, one of the big players we mentioned, right, which is which is Microsoft. They are heavily betting on uh, the approach that uses topological quantum computing, right, right? and. Right. Um, it's already public domain that I think it was 2018, right? Yes. When they had a major setback, they they thought they observed the the Majorana fermion, and then it turns out that well, they that didn't actually didn't didn't, did, didn't happen, right? So starting from this this topic, um, I've analyzed and read a lot about the potential advantages of topological computing, right? Topological quantum computing uh, with the briding and then everything else that that comes with that. But I would really like to ask you from this kind of fundamental perspective, right? Where do you see uh, this this approach heading to? Do you think topological quantum computing does have a future or it's still at the point where it's kind of inconclusive, it's very difficult to kind of make advances in, in this field. I would really like to to get your, your your take on this. Right. So, you know, topological quantum computing, of course, has a lot of advantages. It's the only way that we know of that is resilient to, you know, some of the decoherence and um, the, the dragon of decoherence that we have to slay in every other quantum technology. So it's very promising from that standpoint. And therefore... Mm-hmm. 
seeing a player like Microsoft and some of the other players really go, you know, um, go for it is is uh, exciting to me. Now, observing Majorana fermions, of course, is a whole different story. They are, it's a very subtle signature, right? These uh, um, predictions, of course, by as Tori Majorana, and I've, I've probably uh, butchered that that name, uh, <laughs> but these have been around for for a while. They they're they date back to the early days of quantum mechanics. Um, realizing these in a system repeatedly, um, being able to convince colleagues of it, I think that's a, a little more challenging. But it is a subtle signature, and you know I I think that there are efforts from people across the world. Uh, to to look for it, to actually be able to um, realize it because of the in- incredible promise, right? It's one of those things. It's very hard to do. It's a, a subtle signature that we're not sure if you're going to find in these nanowire systems, whether it's going to be some other kind of um, a system where where these are, are realized, heterostructures. There are so many proposed architectures for, for finding Majoranas out there. But I think the payoff of being able to to find and realize one of these is is pretty high. So, I personally work in uh, you know the area of topological materials. So I don't necessarily think about you know exactly which architecture somebody's going to mm-hmm. find and be able to do braiding in. Um, but I have uh, you know colleagues here, um, colleagues at, at Caltech and and other places that have really spent their whole career on this topic, and I think that stems from the incredible promise that that it holds the bet the bet here is that a hundred years from now people will look back at cars and say well there was a time when they used to run on gas but now you know they're electric and we we get that and and there may be a time when we look back and look at super super uh, conducting and photonics and uh, trapped ion and say well they used to run quantum computers that way but you know topological is the way to go but it might take a while especially since right. it's such a quixotic the fact that we're having so much trouble just observing it, I imagine the challenges to manipulating it are just as high. Yep. And, you know, the the key step in, in these is to, to realize this, this braiding component. So, of course, finding and then going through that, that braiding step is uh, those, are, those are both incredible challenges. And I, I really admire people who are in the field and working towards these, uh, these hard problems. Well, as you mentioned before, Microsoft has the money. And and they have more money than most um, most countries, and so uh, <laughs> you know I'm glad someone's taking it on seriously. And they seem undeterred. I, I haven't seen any uh, backpedaling from them. Uh, though they've been a little bit close to the close to the chest with their cards, but um, there's, in, I mean, there's so fact, many different modalis, modologies. One one of the other things that I wanted to 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 brought up to to bring up is uh, well the let's say the the core of the quantum computer right that's one thing then the other very interesting thing and very interesting challenge difficult in the same time obviously in building the quantum computer is the control layer right uh, right and uh what how how do you see things evolving in in this obviously what we would like to do is to have the core of the quantum computer get closer to closer to uh, what would be quantum room temperature, right? That would right. ease the stress and the burden on the control layer. Right. But right. as of today, this is still a very, very difficult thing. Like when you're at, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 millikelvins, how do right. you control a process running at that temperature with something that comes from hundreds of kelvins? 
So yeah. how, how do you see the, the developments in, in this space and, and the challenges? You know, this is uh, an area where I think um, there's a lot that theory has been able to, to accomplish. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a, a theorist. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, you're, you're thinking of how do I control a very fragile quantum state with an external field. It could be an external pulse. You know, there, there are companies that specialize in these uh, microwave um, pulse-based controls of, of superconducting uh, qubits. And it's almost a dichotomy, right? I don't want to touch my quantum state because it's very fragile, but I want to control it. Otherwise, the whole thing is practically useless to me. And um, so this is an area where I think there's some tricks that, that uh, you know, theorists have introduced. Um, how do you actually manipulate your, your uh, qubit or your sets of qubits? How do you address them without actually introducing additional decoherence. And you can do learning on such pulse sequences. In fact, this is a field that's really taking off is, you know, how can I actually uh, program an optimal pulse sequence to encode a particular Hamiltonian onto my device? This could be either optically, it could be, you know, um, uh, electronically. How do I do that without actually um, causing additional decoherence. And that's a problem for, for actually, it turns out, ML and, and AI as well. So it's, it's uh, I think, a nice intersection between, you know, things we've learned in, um, pun intended, in, in classical CS and, and EE that we're applying to how to, you know, uh, think about optimal control in uh, the context of quantum technologies. Um, I think that we have only scratched the surface. I think there's a lot more to do particularly in uh, cases where you're looking at larger and more complex architectures, right? So right now we're talking about a single quantum device. Of course, as you uh, start to see clustered or distributed quantum computing uh, arrive on, on the market, you're going to see, of course, multiple quantum devices uh, that are connected uh, somehow. Uh, perhaps they're, this is a, the equivalent of the, the Mellanox for for quantum computers, once uh, something like that uh, hits, hits the market, you start to see that, that um, the naive pulse sequences that you might design for a single device actually are completely uh, irrelevant for such uh, complicated uh, architectures. But I think this is where there's uh, a lot of crossover between you know, things we learn in uh, GPU accelerated computing, things we learn in other kinds of exascale computing that can be uh, applied. So. Yeah. This this is I mean uh, um, as as somebody coming from from the the field of, of of AI and machine learning it's it's fascinating how many kind of uh, let's say crossovers you find between these between these 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 areas and uh, uh, in in the field of AI and machine learning I've seen like a lot of crazy theories and proposals with respect on how to use mostly from me things like that well uh <laughs> you would be surprised uh would be would be surprised uh, surprised patrick yeah um uh, so there's been a lot of talk about getting to a million qubits we, uh, we had a guest on whose whose company's goal is that uh and i know that microsoft i think we just recently came out with a cmos which with a goal would would it be to have something so the wires aren't running at high Kelvin, but they actually can run at the cold temperatures of the dilution refrigerator. Uh, so there's a lot of efforts in the commercial space there. Now, um, the the thing that I was I was going to ask you was you you're in the <clears throat> you're in the Harvard 
space, the, the academic space, which is very vibrant. You've got MIT labs there, Lincoln Labs, uh, your own lab. Uh, it's a very dynamic environment. Boston's a great place to be in if you're, you know, with, with the quantum world. But there's also a lot of commercial activity out there. There's a lot of companies. There's a lot of uh, money starting to flow into the venture capital side of things. And and one of the places that we're we are anticipating uh, both Cyprian and I, and we've talked about it since the first episode. I'm sorry for the long winded question. Um, is material science and where the future is going to be invented by quantum. And you kind of hinted at it early on. You said the materials that would allow this. And so one of the things, uh, our first guest was Richard Campbell, and, and he famously said on his podcast, <clears throat> the first you know, general AI will build the second general AI. The first truly functional quantum computer will probably build materials that will enable us to build the next a more efficient quantum computer. Can you talk about the material science aspects of this a little bit? Sure. Oh, gosh, yes. So, you know, one of the biggest promises of uh, even current quantum computers, however noisy and imperfect they might be, is to actually predict new materials and molecules, ideally predict them better than you could even with the biggest, baddest uh, uh, classical computers. In fact, uh, you know, it turns out that we're just now starting to see an advantage from from doing some of these calculations on even NIST devices with uh, either using uh, hybrid quantum classical algorithms or uh, directly kind of mapping a problem onto these devices. And the idea is that with some of these amazing new materials and molecules that we design on current imperfect quantum computers, we'll be able to actually make um, you know amazing advances in the next generation of quantum technologies. Yeah. I, and I think, I, go, go ahead. ahead. <clears throat> so the future, if you look at any of our science, science fiction, Star Wars, Star Trek, et cetera, the materials is really where the advancements are. It's up, it's, you know, the energies come from the, the materials, the durability, the space elevators, all these things are dependent on materials that we don't currently have. And the analogy that I've used, and I, and I'm, I'm wondering if you think it's, it's, it's on the money is. Up till now, our modeling ability of classical computing is like me telling you to go find someone in Harvard Square with a stick figure drawing. Because classical computers are so bad at the simulation of, of, yeah. of, of the molecules. But qubits are such a perfect model for electron position that we could do a hundred molecule, a hundred um, electron molecule with a hundred qubits. Right. So, you know, there's a, a little bit of, of uh, so, so you're absolutely right that, you know, being able to actually simulate some of these molecules on quantum computers is going to be uh, game changing. However, and I want to just temper some, uh, some of the, the excitement and enthusiasm here, because current devices, the, the level of uh, decoherence that we see, the um, kind of, you know, the, the fact that you really can't work with uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands of qubits at the moment is preventing us from actually simulating an entire, you know, complicated molecule on a, a, a quantum computer. However, hybrid quantum classical algorithms make the best of, of both worlds. So, you know, you have uh, some part of the problem you're doing on a quantum device and you have some part of the problem that you're doing on your, your favorite GPU or other uh, classical computing platform. And I think that uh, combination has uh, worked out pretty well for, for some of uh, 
not just uh, folks in academia, but also folks in, in industry. There are actually uh, companies that are exclusively focused on such hybrid quantum classical algorithms for you know, pharmaceuticals, for uh, catalysts, and, and other kinds of uh, materials that have relevance independent of quantum technology. Exactly. Right? So, so there's one self-consistent loop. We're going to discover new materials that become relevant for new quantum technologies, but they're also... You know, uh, it's the whole field of, of uh, how we can discover new materials and molecules that are relevant for, for energy technologies, relevant to um, people thinking about catalysis. And I wrote about this uh, uh, actually a few years back now about the, the use case for some of these NIST devices in uh, discovering new catalysts and being able to uh, perhaps not today, but someday. Um, make uh, modifications to you know how much energy we use in the Haber-Bosch process, how much energy we use in various uh, chemical processes. That um, you know, if you if you look at some of these these processes, you can actually say how much of the world's energy consumption can be attributed to one of these. And uh, making even a fractional change there is uh, is, is a big deal. So um, I think there's uh, you know, but we don't have quantum computers yet with the kind of number of qubits the the fidelity, uh, you know, the quality of qubits and, and gates that, that we need to, to make uh, um, all the predictions we want to make. But so. we will. We will. But we will. We're so, getting there. So I, I, it could certainly be imagined that if this had happened 50 years ago, that this would be purely an academic and government effort. And, and the fact that the hub, private sector is diving in so much with so much money um, is kind of like what's been happening with space over the last decade. Uh, and so I think, have you been seeing a lot of, um, without revealing anything, you know, secret that we'd have to delete, um, have you been working with, um, you know, companies and, and, and startups and things like that through your lab, or do you mostly stick with the science? Um, yes. So there's actually, you know, more on the quantum networking side, a company that came out of my group, Alira Quantum, that actually yeah. very heavily focuses on making uh, scalable quantum networks a reality. I've worked also with uh, IBM, Applied Materials, and the companies that are both on the quantum device side and on the use case of these materials side uh, to actually um, make make predictions, think about new um, approaches that we can use current quantum devices. And you'd be surprised, you know, companies that um, you wouldn't expect to to be interested in this space are, are going all in. So um, I think that some similarities with you know previous uh, uh, investments from the private sector in uh, an emerging technology, but everyone I ask says you know we've never seen anything like this before. Mm. Um, the the way that people are embracing cloud technologies. Now you go talk to um, the the CTO or CIO of uh, you know any of of the. Uh, uh, 1,000 or, or Fortune 500 companies, and they say, yeah, we have a, um, a group, a, a team, uh, whatever they, they call it internally, that's looking at quantum technologies. And I don't think they're all um, you know, invested in, in the same um, approach, which is a good thing, right? So it's not that everyone's going to a, a particular uh, hardware provider. So, so they're really shopping around and, and getting um, you know, the best... Uh, type of quantum device for their problem. And what I mean by that is that there are probably quantum devices in the near term that will be you know, amazing for problems in, in uh, optimization and some others that might be way better for problems in quantum simulation. And there are companies that are interested in one or the other, some cases right. both. And I think a lot of that um, 
has has made its way to even companies that are typically viewed as risk averse. Yeah. So they're they're realizing that it's either disrupt or be disrupted. Right. So, um, Patrick, I would very much like, because I know we're starting to be short on time, I would like to switch gears just a little bit. Uh, uh, and it's our favorite topic, you know. Um, like, one of the challenges with quantum computing as a field of research and then hopefully at some point a commercial field is uh, a certain shortage of resource, of human resources, like people who are skilled enough to understand to work and um, one of the things that we really like to, to ask uh, everybody who's in our show involved in the academic world and research is, how hard do you see, A, to teach this to people, and B, uh, for people to transition, especially for those who have already spent a part of their career in the world of classical, right? How, mm-hmm. how hard do you see this transition being from your brain being wired to bits and and readable states and things like that, right? To something that might be totally counterintuitive. Sure. So so let me answer uh, both parts of that question. So towards the first, you know, students, um, undergraduate, graduate students entering the field, um, I and and few others in the community put forward uh, this this IEEE report. It has recommendations that. Um, are now public for, you know, universities, both um, research-focused, teaching universities, community colleges, to actually be able to incorporate quantum engineering and quantum mechanics into um, their, their uh, not, not just quantum mechanics uh, very abstractly, but as relevant to, you know, upcoming cloud technologies into their curriculum. So when I first came to Harvard, there wasn't a course here on quantum engineering. In fact, my first course that I introduced here, Engineering Quantum Mechanics, the S170, was um, you know, taken by students across applied math, computer science, physics, chemistry. It was, uh, it was actually a bit overwhelming for me as a, a totally new faculty member to say, how do I you know, uh, address uh, people's different backgrounds? Because some people would have a great uh, background from the code side, but maybe not as much on the physics side and, and vice versa. And to address that, you know, we've uh, now been able to say, here's how you introduce a quantum engineering component into your existing curriculum. I'm not talking about starting, and this is actually a debate that, um, you know, faculty in, in um, this, this workshop out of which the recommendations came out have, you know, should we have a dedicated major, a dedicated minor? What if people don't want to have something dedicated, but they want to have some knowledge? You know, how do we actually incorporate that? And all of that is uh, actually in, in this uh, in this report we uh, put out. It's called Building a, a Quantum Engineering Curriculum. So I think the workforce that various companies need um, in order to actually grow, to, to have an impact and to maintain, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, dare I say, uh, U.S. leadership in this field. Uh, but, you know, in, in general, I think... Uh, we, we, we would not be able to, to do that without creating a broader workforce than currently exists. Yeah. And I, so, I was gonna, just going to say the programming side of things is probably less onerous than what you're describing. You're describing building engineers to build the, the systems and do the science and build well, the systems that will do the science. A little bit of both, right? Because um, people who are going into... Um, software development roles, for example, don't typically take anything that would touch on quantum information 
And yet, if they're going to be, um, you know, leading uh, development in uh, various types of, of quantum algorithm contexts, um, there's some amount of information they need. The type of information and training they need is actually different from those who are building some of these right. platforms. So yeah. we have really uh, tried to address that that gap in in this uh, report, and I've tried to address that to some degree in in my course. The case that you asked about also, uh, Supriyan, where we're you know trying to upskill or retrain. I feel like retrain almost sounds like people have forgotten something, right? But upskill <laughs> is. Uh, Because a lot of folks who graduated with degrees that were at the the forefront at at the time when they graduated may not have touched at all on quantum information, even at the graduate level. And so I worked with uh, Applied Materials actually to lead a a four-day workshop, and it was more of a um, interactive, but still uh, had a a pedagogical component for their existing engineers to actually uh, learn about um, cloud technologies and learn about how they could um, join join the field. And I think those types of upskilling activities, you're going to see a lot of companies do that. I know Google, IBM are already doing that with their existing, very, very talented um, software engineers. And I suspect that from the hardware side, we'll start to see you know every electrical engineering hiring company, uh, electrical engineer hiring company, uh, doing doing the same with, with their uh, folks. So... Yeah, it's it's happening already, but not at the pace that we need in order to keep up with the the workforce shortages. I say this both with my CTO hat on and with my faculty hat. <laughs> that, you know, uh, finding people in this field is uh, is hard. It's very competitive. Of course, it's a competitive labor market in in uh, all areas at the moment, but particularly in quantum. It's been particularly in the Northeast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. I think we could. I think if you would uh, allow us, we would talk to you for another six hours. But unfortunately, the podcast's only so long. Uh, anything last things, uh, Cyprian? I know. I know you've got to contain yourself. But, yeah, I, uh, I, I I rest my case. No, I I have <laughs> at least twenty questions lined up, but uh, <laughs> we're out of time. So maybe we'll have another opportunity. Uh, this has been a, a, a an amazing discussion. Absolute yeah. eye opener. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, any last words that before we sign off? Bri? You know, if there are folks who are listening to the, the podcast, they're considering joining this field, but find it to be um, intimidating in any way. Uh, I encourage you to go look at some of the, the open access content that uh, folks have made available. They're open access textbooks, videos, you name it. And it's, it's not as uh, scary as it sounds. It's not as new agey as it sounds. And I hope to see many of you in uh, professional context in the future. A thousand percent agree. Thanks for joining us. And uh, thanks for everybody who's listening. Goodbye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye.